0: Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Garrettson.
1: Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Garrettson, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Today, my guest is Wayne White. Wayne is an entrepreneur, inventor, and space law expert based in Denver, Colorado. He is the author of the Space Pioneer Act legislation, which includes real property rights, mining law, and salvage law for outer space. He is also the founder and CEO of Space Booster LLC, a startup aerospace company. Mr. White graduated from Chapman University, received a master's degree in business administration from UC Riverside, and received his law degree from UC Davis. He's the author of many published space law articles and a frequent speaker in the field of national and international space law. In 2003, he had the honor of representing the United States as a member of the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee. Mr. White is the sole inventor of two patented technologies, a modular space structure for human habitation and an interplanetary spacecraft suitable for human crew mission to Mars. He's an associate fellow of the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics and a former director of the National Space Society. Welcome Wayne. Thanks for having me Pete. Let's start a little bit with your bio. You said that you are a former director of the National Space Society. Tell me a little bit about that organization and what they're about.
0: Well I was an early member of the L5 Society the L5 Society is one of the two component organizations that merged to form the National Space Society. So the L5 Society was formed uh, following the publication of Gerard O'Neill's book about space settlements in the 1970s. And uh, I read that book and I joined the L5 Society because of that book. I'm a founding member of the uh, LA chapter of the National Space Society, which is the organization for the advancement of space industrialization and settlement. The National Space Society was created to create a a space-faring civilization. In other words, the larger National Space Society is also, their goal is to develop outer space economically, and to settle outer space. My membership in that organization has influenced my entire career. You used two important words there, that development and settlement, which are different
1: than sort of what many people think about when they think about space exploration. Can you talk a little bit about
0: what do those words mean and why are they important? Up till now, our space program has relied, relied almost entirely on Earth. If we can create a space economy, there will be a lot of economically positive aspects to that. Uh, if we start mining materials in outer space, then we can also start manufacturing in outer space. Rather, it's going to be in the long run to really have bio-settlements. You need to live off the land, you need to use local materials, and you need to start manufacturing your own products so you don't have to import them from Earth. And the more capabilities we have like that in space manufacturing, logistics, cargo transport, all these different elements of our economy here on Earth, we're going to need the same kind of infrastructure in outer space. Now, part of that infrastructure that's needed, I take it, is a
1: legal infrastructure. So talk a little bit about this, the Space
0: Pioneer Act and how did you come up with this idea? I always believed that Real property rights is an essential element of a market economy. When nobody owns something, then nobody takes care of it. There is real truth to pride of ownership. If people own property, they take care of it, they improve it, they do things to increase its value. I was of that opinion even prior to the breakup of the Soviet Union. I started writing Real Property Rights in Outer Space in 1981. I think it's worth noting, uh, you know, there are some younger people in our country that think that socialism, communism might be the answer. But if you look at China and the Soviet Union or China and Russia, they have both enacted real property rights statutes in recent years because you can't compete with the United States and other market economies if you don't have property rights. If the economy just doesn't function well. Now, does real property
1: rights uh, have a connotation that's distinct from just property rights?
0: Yes. Lawyers refer to personal property and real property. So personal property are things that you own like a car or house or, well, a car. A house and land are real property. So they're treated differently under the law ownership of private property is not changed when it goes into outer space. So if you own your spacecraft, when you lift off, you also own it when it's in outer space. But real property is a much different concept. And I think for a long time, people assumed that we couldn't have real property rights in outer space, because Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits territorial sovereignty. I could get way down on the weeds and talk about common law and the way different countries have treated property on earth. There are basically two theories. One of them is that you mix your labor with the soil, the natural law theory of property rights, and the law will then protect that, that effort. But in common law countries, uh, Britain, the United States, the property rights originate with the sovereign, and it's based on territorial sovereignty. The island of Svalbard in uh, which is a Norwegian island. There was a time after the First World War when multiple countries claimed that area and they decided to base property rights and mining rights on jurisdiction rather than territorial sovereignty. So that's what I'm doing here is we're keeping, you know, the Space Pioneer Act is completely consistent with the Outer Space Treaty. There are really only two approaches to property rights. Either you withdraw from the outer space treaty, which prohibits territorial sovereignty, and then you assert territorial sovereignty and grant property rights based on that. I think that's a really bad idea. It's very difficult to achieve agreement uh, in the United Nations on space space issues. Treaties don't have enough definitions to be really useful for business. It creates a lot of legal problems when you actually get down in the trenches and start starting to make legal arguments. And so national legislation can be far more detailed and it takes far less time to accomplish. Uh, The Moon Treaty, for example, took 10 years to negotiate and it has a very problematic term the quote unquote common heritage of mankind uh, that different nations define differently. I think if you really get down to a hard analysis of the Moon Treaty, there was not agreement among the nations that drafted that treaty over what it meant. And as a result, the United States never signed or ratified the Moon Treaty. So this approach is a far more detailed, the Space Pioneer Act is a far more detailed rules of the road of how to operate in outer space. We're going to have companies that are going to be making big investments to land space objects on the moon and undertake activities. So the Space Pioneer Act tries to do something I don't think tries it does do something that the treaties don't do. And that is in a very detailed manner, tell space operators how to operate in order to avoid liability. And it, it provides rules that are designed to prevent interference with each other's activities. I think protection, legal certainty, so that Uh, a company's attorneys know what's gonna happen in any given legal situation and and what's legal and what's not. The treaties just don't provide enough detail to really operate on a day-to-day basis. And and this is a very detailed uh, legislation. It can be followed by a treaty that would be consistent with it. But this is the fastest way that we can keep up with the technology, the technological changes and advancements that are happening in space. It's, it would be an enormous enabler for the space community and and space the development of a space economy. And that's a good
1: place to pause and and talk about um, uh, this in some detail. So first of all, you're a lawyer who's obviously had to think about these problems. I'm sure you've been counseled to some who've had to think about these problems. Uh, when you say detail, like we've seen the Artemis Accord principles, which is a page or two pages, uh, but but you're significantly more detailed, like how many pages and how many sections is involved in the Space Pioneer Act, uh, which you've taken quite some time, right? I mean, this isn't a,
0: a weekend project. This is uh, quite a number of years of your life to write. Back in the early 90s, I wrote, I published Real Property Rights in Outer Space, Mining Law for Outer Space, and Salvage Law for Outer Space. Three academic articles that I believe are seminal. Um, I was the first to write about these topics. And the Space Pioneer Act expands upon that to fulfill my lifelong goal of having legislation that would establish real property rights in outer space. It took me a year to write. It's 200 pages. It has three major sections, which I just mentioned, the real property rights. It's, it's, uh, the real property rights is in the form of a Homesteading Act that has procedures for establishing rights. And then uh, the salvage law and the mining law. The mining law section is very similar to the homesteading exception ex- section, except that you have to do uh, a mining health and safety report. Then uh, the salvage law section kind of surprised me. I, for the most part, it tracks the uh, the maritime salvage agreement um, and. It would be unremarkable really in that because space salvage really isn't very different from maritime salvage. But in going through it, uh, I thought a lot about space debris and avoiding, avoiding orbital conjunctions. And I just really felt like, you know, I'm on the mailing list for the near-Earth asteroid uh, opposite in Houston. And I, I followed this stuff, followed the space debris, read all about it. Uh, And I think it's high time that we started holding people accountable and had some requirements and and start eventually holding people liable for causing an orbital conjunction. So the salvage law section has a scheme for whereby the United States government would pay for removal of US government space objects. Uh, The US government is the largest source of space debris. We've made the most launches and the most of those uh, rocket bodies and space objects are originating from the United States. So initially it says that when when this act takes effect that all space operators in the United States will be required to comply with the US mitigation standard practices, uh, space debris mitigation standard practices. That'll take effect immediately and then it basically says that no one will be held liable until such time as we have 5 us and or allied us allied companies that can provide a full range of sa- salvage services in orbit in other words if you have no way if you have no way of avoiding a conjunction we're not going to hold you liable but if you in order to not be held liable you also have to have complied with the uh, mitigation practices, and um, and then then you won't be held liable. And so then after the Secretary of the Interior finds that we have five, we've had five salvage companies, and they've been operating for five years. Then ultimately, uh, companies can be held liable for causing an orbital conjunction. But even then, it says. If there's no way to stop it, we aren't going to hold you liable. So that brings up something else that
1: is likely very counterintuitive for much of my audience, and that is that you place a significant amount of responsibility for this on the Department of the Interior rather than on NASA or the Department of Commerce. Can you talk a little bit about what are the envisioned responsibilities with the Department of the Interior and why you chose the Department of Interior? Uh, as the executing branch for those portions?
0: The Department of the Interior is the department that oversaw the U.S. homesteading program on earth here in the United States. They also are the department that handles mining claims and anything associated with the general mining law. The general mining law's general approach is generally what I followed in, in the homesteading and mining sections. You chose the
1: Department of the Interior because of its historic role in homesteading, and because it already
0: handles. And so they land. they have been administering claims disputes for over a century uh, in these two areas of mining and uh, mining and homesteading, and so uh, they have an established history of case holdings. One of the principal things that I tried to do with this law was to have a way to not reinvent the wheel just because we're in outer space. Um, I, I have kept these laws as consistent with our terrestrial laws as I can so that, for example, if you have a boundary dispute, a property boundary dispute on the moon, it's really not any different from a property dispute on earth. And so, um, and that's one of the convenient things about having real property rights, it, it handles, that's the way we handle a lot of minor disputes uh, in, the, in the United States uh, through the mechanisms of property ownership. So
1: this is a, this is a great place for us to pause to sort of talk about where international law ends and domestic law, you know, begins. And the whole idea of what is, self-executing and not self-executing. So, you know, obviously a listener in the this is going to say, okay, it's great if I have a, you know, a law that could, you know, adjudicate a dispute between two U.S. companies on the moon, but what happens if one of those companies is from another country? And, uh, and I, I know that you're, that that your uh, draft act also deals with reciprocity. So let let's start from the top. You know, like today, if two companies from different nations had a boundary dispute of, of claim mining,
0: you know, claims on the moon, what would happen? Right now, here on Earth, you mean? If they couldn't resolve it through mediation or arbitration, in other words, a negotiation, uh, then they would have to go to court and bring suit. A lot of it would depend on, you know, what law controls. Uh, on earth, it would be state law. But any activities in interna- international areas are uh, under the jurisdiction of the federal government rather than the states. Uh, the only areas that I, this is just an aside, but the only areas that I, that I have in the act that are governed by state law is uh, condominium ownership homeowners associations and leases. Uh, those are two areas, uh, two things that people can do under this law, uh, but they have to select what state law applies. And, and that would be true with the boundary dispute on earth. It, the state law that governs would be very determinative in the outcome of the case. So anyway, in terms of self-executing, I think, um, it might help to explain. The Outer Space Treaty has a provision that's set for reciprocal observation of space objects. Uh, and this stems from the distrust of the Cold War and concerns that early space objects might be military rather than civilian, as claimed. There is nothing in the Outer Space Treaty about the procedures of how to do these observations. And that's something that I explained in detail. Uh, You know, there are provisions in the act. This is the way a foreign visit will be scheduled and this is the way it works. So that provision of the Outer Space Treaty was not self-implementing because it wasn't detailed enough. And now the Space Pioneer Act executes that. it brings it into law, and that means that now have full circle, we have the whole thing done. And there are are other provisions in the Outer Space Treaty that aren't really explained in detail that are covered in my law. It's very clear, if this is enacted, it'll be very clear that we have executed, we've put the Outer Space Treaty into action in our laws.
1: And so within your law, you know, if if two companies uh, have a dispute um, and they're both U.S. companies, what what happens?
0: Well, it would be the same. They would get the uh, the Space Pioneer Act provides that U.S. district courts are the the court that that's the forum that you go in to start your case. You might later end up in the court of appeals, but you start in the federal district court. Um, so that's where someone would go to resolve their dispute. And then the court would apply this law.
1: And now what would happen, Um, you know, does a, would a foreign company just automatically be able to bring suits against a U.S. company or do they have to be uh, recognized some reciprocity for that to
0: happen? That's one of the big benefits of the reciprocity provision is that. Well, it says each country can write their law, their real property law, their mining law, their salvage law. They can write those laws so that they are consistent with their court procedures and their existing law. As long as the predicted outcome of a particular court case is the same in the foreign court and the U.S. court, then that's all that's required in order to qualify for reciprocity. The U.S. State Department would review their application for reciprocity, and, and the sole criteria really is is this an equivalent is this law going to give equivalent outcome outcomes that are equivalent to U.S. law. In one of our, the earliest conversations
1: we ever had, I believe you were talking about how augmenting domestic law uh, helps shape international law, as well as shapes you know, uh, and forwards U.S. interests. Can you talk a little bit about how that
0: happens? Well, I think one of the beauties of this act are the rep- reciprocity provisions. There's a reciprocity provision in each of the three major sections of the act, and it's sort of a carrot and the stick approach. In order to um, in order to get reciprocity, in order for the U.S. to recognize other countries' uh, property rights, mining claims, etc., they have to enact a law that's substantially similar to ours. Well, ours includes various requirements, like complying with the, the space debris mitigation practices. It has the, the act has environmental protections. We don't want to pollute the moon, particularly when there's water in the regolith. It's a really good way for us to lead. It's a good way to pull together allies and have a level playing surface. It will provide for a lot of fairness. It provides for mutual recognition of court judgments. So in your example, if a foreign company has a claim against the U.S., they could bring it either in their own, nation, assuming their country has reciprocity, they could bring their action in their own country's court or in the U.S. court. And if they did it in the U.S. court, then their country would be required to enforce that judgment. And the same thing would be true if if that judgment were rendered in the foreign country, and uh, the U.S. would then have to recognize that judgment. So one of the things that the State Department will look at when deciding whether to, to give a country reciprocity status is they look at their legal system. Most of our allies' legal systems would be totally acceptable. But when you get to some countries that have are very authoritarian, uh, some countries have legal systems that are very corrupt, and all the judgments are political. And um, in those cases, what it says, what the Act says, is that um, if that foreign country agrees to have all of its... Dis- space disputes resolved in international arbitration in an acceptable international arbitration forum that has space law experts, then that's one way in which they might qualify for reciprocity. So we're not trying to exclude countries based on their legal systems, but it's certainly an important consideration. So this is a good place to touch on
1: the tie between legislation, US domestic legislation, and overall grand strategy and US interests. So talk me through, obviously, you have a vision of what you would like to see happen in space in the long term, and the the role that you would like to see the United States play. So let's talk a little bit about like, what is the world that you're trying to bring about and what is the role that you think the United States needs to play in order to to bring about that world?
0: Well, in the really, really big picture, I'm worried that we might end up in another world war. Um, There are certainly a lot of possibilities for that to happen. I think that The more people we have on this planet and the more depleted our resources become, the more likely it is that we're going to have a war. One of the big points that was made in the 70s by Gerard O'Neill and others is that we have this window of opportunity in which we can establish a space-faring civilization and get out there and start getting resources that later we're going to need desperately. But we have to do it sooner rather than later. If you wait until we really need the resources, well, gee, it's gonna take another 30 or 40 years before we have the infrastructure to do that. We we need to start now. I think that we may end up in a gold rush mentality, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that initially, mined resources in outer space will be a lot more valuable in outer space, but over the long term, particularly for strategic metals. I, I think uh, rare earth metals and, and things that are in short supply, particularly things that the United States doesn't have much of, there will be immediate markets for those materials. On the whole, more common materials, want, minerals and materials won't be, uh, it won't be economical to, ex- to import those into earth for a long time. It'll always be cheaper to mine it on earth until it becomes pretty scarce. So you, you
1: see a necessary expansion into space basically to deal with the problem
0: of scarcity? Yes. I, I think one of the problems that we have to overcome is, is a terrestrial mindset. People on Earth tend to agree or tend to have this worldview that we have a pie that has to be cut into smaller and smaller pieces uh, the more people make claims to the resources or whatever we're talking about. But outer space is vast. I mean, the the amount of materials and space for living in outer space is incredibly vast. I think once the everyday American understands, the everyday Earth citizen understands how much is out there, I think I would like to see countries invest their money into developing space rather than spending money for defense and aggressive warfare. I think we always need its defense. I think we need our militaries. I'm not any kind of radical like that, but I think our money could best be spent expanding our prospects for the future rather than doing destructive things because people are fighting over limited resources. Okay. So then, you know, as I would
1: put it, you know, your fundamental strategic premise is that the grand strategy of the United States should be to expand its resources and the, the greatest expansion then, you know, is in space. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. Yeah. All right. So now within that context of like, if, if that is the, the, the big piece of strategy, what, what does law
0: do? What is, what is the place? How, how, how can law be used as strategy? Well, as I said earlier, I think this will be an incredible enabler. Our companies, our entrepreneurial companies are charging ahead, even, even though there are a lot of legal questions that remain unanswered. But I think there will be a lot more investment in space if there's more legal certainty. And this law provides that.
1: You know, you talked about that this
0: provides legal
1: certainty, and and you sort of discussed a number of headings, but let's talk about where things are uncertain right now. This is the solution. If the Space Pioneer Act is the solution, talk about the problems, like what prevents a company from doing what right now because of a lack of legal certainty?
0: Well... One of the more near-term things is we have a number of companies that are planning on building their own space stations. They may be used for tourism, taking people up there. They may be selling time and space to universities and other research organizations. One of the things that the Space Pioneer Act does is it says that, well, the whole concept of safety zones the way safety zones are defined uh, in the Space Pioneer Act, the owner of a facility, in this case, an orbiting space station, the owner of that facility has the right to direct operations within the safety zone. And as we've seen with the International Space Station, the space station, ha- they generally it's agreed that when a cargo ship comes up to the station, the station will then take control of that object and grapple it and take it in to safely dock with the space station. Owners of private space stations don't have any right, currently don't have any right to direct navigation within an area around their space object. So, um, you know, that presents a certain danger to that space object. And Right now, they, they just don't have any authority to guide operations around their space object. So I, I think that's very necessary. It's, it's a legal uncertainty. They would probably have contracts and agreements with whoever comes up to their station anyway, and they could make private arrangements. But how much more comforting to know ahead of time that they have that right and that, that it's clearly stated in the law. What are some of the uncertainties surrounding uh, salvage and and mining? Well, one thing I can say about the salvage section is that I expect as on earth, that probably 80 to 90% of salvage is going to be on a contract basis. So the space salvage section of the act deals a lot more with emergency salvage, which is an area where there is a lot of uncertainty. So for example, if you have a dead piece of space debris that is on a trajectory that's going to cause a conjunction with one of your active satellites, does the owner of the active satellite have any right, if they have the capability to go out with salvage equipment and grab that dead, that dead space object? Under current law, they don't have any authority to do that without at least a written agreement with the owner of the dead space object but the space pioneer act says in an emergency if you don't have time to contact the owner of that dead space object you can and you do have the capability to capture that before it hits your satellite you can do that so that's another you know good example where legal certainty makes a huge difference so the you know much of the space salvage section it does pretty closely track and I want to get the name of it right, the Maritime Salvage Convention. So that's another way that it's consistent with terrestrial law is, uh, is that we do follow terrestrial maritime salvage law very closely in the space salvage section. That's incredibly helpful to attorneys. It means that they can call up a maritime salvage attorney and say, you know, I, I just need a quick opinion, you know, what do you think about this? And they would probably have something worthwhile to say. So anyway, there are countless examples where the details in this act enable people to do things that would be legally questionable without the act. And so by removing the the legal questionableness,
1: this is basically an accelerator for homesteading and salvage and mining you know, just across the board. So entirely new industries that today people sort of raise their eyebrows and go, can I do that? This just makes absolutely clear. This is how you do it um, and, and how you can move forward. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, what you expect to happen in, in sort of these major things? So you, you talked a little bit about, you know, when we talked about the Department of the Interior and they're administering of the Homestead Act. Once you provide this sort of clarity for homesteading, what do you think or what do you hope will happen, you know, as a consequence of, of this law being out there?
0: Well, well, certainly I hope there's a lot more active space debris removal. We probably will have more people seeking to put space objects on the moon. I think that probably the homesteading activity and the mining law activity will be largely focused on the moon. But asteroids provide a lot more accessible materials for mining. So I I anticipate that mining would probably generate a lot of activity related to asteroids. I mean, it's already half mined now. You don't have to dig it out of the ground. And there are many near-Earth asteroids that we could mine, and it would be beneficial if they're threatening potentially hazardous asteroids, then that would be extremely helpful if a miner, you know, set up a base there and and perhaps deflected the asteroid out of a potential Earth conjunction. Does the law deal with that? uh, Does your law deal with that eventuality? Yes, it does. Uh, In fact, it has some provisions to encourage uh, deflection of potentially hazardous asteroids. It says that Companies that wanna do that will have the right to uh, execute an unfunded agreement with, they may, but are not required to enter into a space act agreement unfunded, whereby NASA would assist them in planning their mission and uh, NASA would have the right to be present during the deflection operations to offer advice only. I think that's that's one way that space miners could t- you know kill two birds with one stone. They could mine the asteroid and also deflect it as they're undertaking their uh, their mining operations. And some of their some of their costs would be offset through the NASA help SAS, NASA assistant. says NASA can also assist them with providing equipment like sensors and, and equipment for their satellite. Um, It says that they will put a tracking device on the asteroid so that NASA can track it from there there on after. The act does try to encourage that that kind of activity. Now, assuming that the United States does
1: take leadership uh, and passes this law, what do you expect will happen internationally as a result?
0: Back during the George W. Bush administration in 2001, I was invited to an invitation-only space law workshop. All of our allies sent representatives, and Scott Pace was the keynote speaker. And he announced that the United States was going to begin moving towards the implementation of real property rights in outer space. And he said that it would be based upon my work. To the best of my knowledge, none of our allies objected to that it was discussed extensively during that workshop. So they were familiar with the ideas. Uh, the State Department had already vetted my articles and, and said, this is a valid approach. So I think that the fact that no one objected at that point to the real property rights part of the act and the fact that the Artemis, the Artemis Accords does refer to safety zones and it does anticipate the Space Pioneer Act. Uh, I had already drafted the first couple of sections of the of the act uh, before the Artemis Accords. Quite a few of our allies readily signed up for the Artemis Accords. And so I, I believe that the same thing would happen with the Space Pioneer Act reciprocity. So you would imagine that in the same way that we saw other nations
1: mirroring the United States law on asteroid mining they would basically use this the friendly, friendly nations at least would use this as a blueprint and we would have a, a web of friendly nations that would more or less have very similar norms about real property and safety
0: zones and, and salvage and yeah and emergency procedures yeah yeah. And that, that's going back to our earlier discussion, that that's the way that I believe the United States would assert leadership. I think it, it would be very, very powerful for us to show leadership at this point. So, I mean, there, there's an awful
1: lot in your act about essentially is center line of what people think is responsible, you know, responsibility to clean stuff up, you know, to be you know, good environmental stewards, to ensure that folks are posting and registering, you know, what their, what their claims are, just a number of, of different things in uh, respecting of heritage sites. It does seem as if we would be setting the example, you know, of, of good behavior for others, while also sort of unleashing entirely different sectors of the private sector that right now are in a bit of legal limbo. Right. I want to give you the opportunity to sort of talk about, you know, the act in greater detail, delve into anything that we haven't covered so far.
0: Homestead owners can sell their mining rights under the uh, homestead, uh, provided that there's a mining health and safety report. If you claim a homestead uh, and you're going to put it underground, which is really probably where everything's going to end up because of the radiation then you have to file a mining health and safety report anything underground you've got to file a safety report there are a lot of safety provisions in here it establishes the uh, and it requires private spacecraft owners for every spacecraft that carries humans there has to be a safety officer who's familiar with all the ship's operations and and can make can make life and death decisions in an emergency without liability. We didn't talk about areas of ongoing activity. When you have surface operations on a celestial body, for example, uh, mining equipment that's going along and it's digging up and collecting regolith for uh, materials processing. If you don't have a space object, but you do have surface operations and it can be robotic. So your mining equipment could be robotic going in a certain pattern and digging up and collecting the regolith. That's called an area of ongoing activity. And you can make a claim to to get property rights to that area, but only for so long as those activities continue. Uh, Because the property rights are based on jurisdiction, there has to be a basis for recognition.
1: Well, hold on. Let's pause there because that's a rather interesting question that I think many people would be curious about. So what is the basis for making claims? And I believe you specifically in the law disavow some classes of previous novelty claims. So let's talk a little bit about like, and conceivably there could be all kinds of, you know, I saw it first. orbited it first, I landed on it first, you know, I have some real activity, I filed for it first, I mined it, you know, first, I put a human being on it first. What is the standard that you uh, place for making a claim? And then, like, how do you stop a person from just, like, landing on Mars and claiming all of Mars, right? So talk to me a little bit about the basis for claims and how do you parcel out uh, ways that are not ridiculously large or ridiculously small?
0: Okay, so you have ninety days to file a preliminary claim. This is for mining and homesteads. It's ninety days after you commence areas, commence activities in an area of ongoing activity, uh, or place a facility or land a space object on the on the the specific site. The maximum size for a claim is approximately 10 acres, and that includes the safety zone. You have to show beneficial use, and that's a defined term. I talked earlier about how treaties don't define their terms. The homesteading section alone has 31 defined terms. This is a very, very lawyer, judge-friendly law. You have to show beneficial use. Uh, This law says specifically, you can't just claim an area and then hold it for investment. You have to put it to beneficial use. We're we're not wanting to fund speculators here. What we want to do is incentivize the creation of infrastructure, of, of economic development infrastructure. If you're putting up more than one facility, then you have to have a development plan. Any activities that further the advancement of your development plan are considered beneficial use, even if it occurs on Earth. And so I'll give you an example. Say you've got a, got a remote power source, you've run cables to it, and some kind of technical problem crops up. And so provision of electricity to the site is delayed. And all the work is done back on Earth, trying to figure out the problem, and figure out how you're gonna resolve it and get the power on. And so those activities would be beneficial use even though they don't occur on the site. There always has to be some sort of presence on the site of either a space object and or people. I should say that you you will be able to, to completely assert a claim solely with robotic equipment. Human presence is not required. The beneficial use the activities that you're claiming are beneficial on the celestial body, those all count. Then you've got to have two years of beneficial use in order to perfect the claim. The maximum time for a claim is 15 years. There's a five-year progress report and then a 10-year progress report. If at the 10-year progress report, you've completed 80% or more of the work In your development plan, then you get another five years and you can go to 15 years. If you're under 80% at 10 years, then you can file, you can amend your claim to only claim the part that you finished, uh, or you can go for the 15 years if you have over 80%. Between being able to lease your property or or sell your property, you're probably never going to face an abandonment situation where you would lose your property right you just have to be you have to stand you know enforce your rights and do what you can to keep the property right in force it you know whether you have to sell it or lease it you know say your company can no longer afford to operate there
1: so what would happen you know if i am a highly successful gas station on the moon so i have Set up a landing pad and refueling facilities. And, you know, I've completed 100%, but at the 15 year point, I'm, I'm still profitable and going strong. W- what does the 15 year limitation mean uh, in that point?
0: Well, in your hypothetical, did they complete the development plan? They did. Okay, then they, their claim, they file at when they finish. Their development plan, then they file a perfected claim application. And then, as long as everything's okay, then their claim issues and they get a certificate of title. And that's in perpetuity? No, at any time when there's no longer any space objects or people uh, on the site, then there's no jurisdiction. US has no jurisdiction and that property right would be extinguished.
1: No, so my question is
0: I land on the moon. I,
1: within two years, set up everything I need for a successful business. I've, I've completed my development plan, but but at the 15-year point, I still have a, a viable business. Do I have to surrender that because the maximum, you know-
0: Oh, no, no, no. It, no, it's just a maximum period for perfecting your claim. Okay,
1: for perfecting
0: it. Yes.
1: So Wayne, this is clearly- a huge potential level up for the United States legal infrastructure for uh, space development and eventually space settlement. So I'm curious, what has been done to date besides writing it to actually start it on the path to become actual legislation? And what's next for the Space Pioneer Act?
0: Well, I started when I finished writing the act, I called up the offices of the Congress people and senators uh, who sit on the space subcommittees in Congress. And I asked for the email address of their staffer that covers space issues. And I sent a copy of the act to all of those staffers. I will continue to follow up with them. I plan on sending it to the National Space Council User Advisory Group. It's domestic policy. I think that they would be uh, a good group to evaluate the act and make recommendations to the National Space Council. The Office of Science and Technology Policy should receive a copy, and they may have some input on that. And then, as we discussed, this creates a new office in the Department of the Interior. So I will also be sending a copy to the Department of the Secretary of the Interior for them to look at. I've sent a copy to the National Space Society previously, uh, but there are other organizations that I could send it to as well, other organizations that might advocate on its behalf. I also had uh, sent a copy to the uh, Aerospace Industries Association, so they already have it. And you're working on a Frequently Asked Questions file as well, right? Yes. Yes. For people who don't have time to read the entire act, I'm writing a frequently asked questions, which should serve as a pretty good summary of the act, something they can read without reading the entire act and still know what it's about. I'm most of the way done now, I'm gonna finish that up. And then that's, I'll send that along with the copy of the Space Pioneer Act to the organizations that I just mentioned. And Wayne, if anybody wants to
1: read the Space Pioneer Act for themselves. Uh, Where can they go to find? I
0: have a profile on academia.edu where all of my articles, uh, published articles, are available for download. And uh, the Space Pioneer Act is there, as well as the Space Pioneer Act outline. And an early version of the Frequently Asked Questions is up there. But eventually here in the near future, I'll have the full FAQ up there. Outstanding. We will post that
1: link when we post the podcast. And uh, Wayne, just last question, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, uh, how should they do that?
0: Uh, Well, I'm on LinkedIn, and they can reach me at wnwhite at sbcglobal.net. Well, Wayne, thank you so
1: much for your efforts to both write the act, as well as spending your time with us today. And I will look forward to seeing where the Space Pioneer Act
0: uh, goes in the future. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great fun. Thank you again, Wayne. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at Thank you for listening.